morning. Welcome. It's good to be with you this morning as we're continuing our study of the book of Jonah. We're coming to the end of what you might want to call Act One. A good way to think about Jonah is there's one story that takes place in two acts. Act One is the first two chapters, which we've been spending our time in over the last couple of weeks. And we're going to, in the next couple of weeks, move into Act Two, which is the last two chapters. You'll find that they're very similar. The stories, the plots, very similar points, very similar themes. But this morning, I want us to look back over Act 1, over chapters 1 and 2. And we're gonna, what we're going to do is try to pull out a thread that runs throughout this first act, but really it runs throughout the whole book, and really throughout the entire Bible. And it has to do with the character of God, in particular, His grace and His graciousness. In Exodus 34, you find the very first place that God begins to describe his character to his people. Bill just read it a couple of moments ago. Of course, up until Exodus 34, since the creation of the world, God has been living out of who he is. His eternal qualities, his divine attributes have been on display since the very creation of the world in all that he has made and all that he does. But in Exodus 34, you find the very first time where he verbally describes what he's like. It's in verses 6 and 7, and these are the most quoted verses by the rest of the Bible. The other biblical authors come back to this verse over and over again as, it, as God is revealing who he is. And actually, in a couple of weeks, we're going to find that Jonah also comes back in quotes, but that's for another week. The first several ver- words of, of Exodus 34, 6 are, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. Compassionate and gracious. These two ideas go together. In fact, in Hebrew, they actually rhyme, so it's kind of fun. And throughout the Old Testament, you find that these two ideas, compassion and gracious, when you find them, one of them, you almost always find them as a pair together. The compassion of God is what moves him to act graciously towards his people. And throughout all of Scripture, you see this idea of grace more often than you think because it's often translated favor or kindness. So you actually see it all throughout Scripture. And it's actually used in a number of contexts that that are not in line with the way that we typically use grace. It's bigger than that, actually. It's used in some contexts to describe when you see something that is beautiful or amazing or incredible that just stirs your heart. For example, imagine you were at a performance or a, a, a show or a concert And it moved you, and it was so beautiful. And it found favor in your eyes. It would be said to be find grace in your eyes. And you would respond graciously or with favor in response to what you saw, which would be round of applause or a recommendation to a friend. If it's beautiful and it finds favor in your eyes, you would respond favorably towards it. This is kind of the way that we we naturally think. Whether it's in kind of a religious sense or not, in the religious sense, this is how many, almost all the other religions in the world outside of Christianity work, is that the gods or, or fate or whatever it is respond more favorably towards those who are more worth it, who are more beautiful. The gods favor those who are more powerful and wealthy. And in a non-religious sense, we get this too. People who are kind to you are the people that you are kind to in response. People who are lovely, you treat with better respect or attention. But this is where the Bible makes a really clear distinction as to who God is. Because 
he does something really strange with his kindness, really strange with his favor. He treats with favor. He calls beautiful. He calls worthy those things and people who have done absolutely nothing to deserve or to merit that favor or that grace. It's actually almost seems to be the exact opposite, that the God of the Bible only seems to show favor and grace to those who don't deserve it, who are unfavorable, unlovely, unworthy of his kindness. And that is really good news for us this morning. And it's really good news for Jonah. So if you have your Bible, Jonah chapter 1 is where we're going to start. Again, we're going to kind of work our way through Jonah 1 and 2, just picking out this thread of God's graciousness towards those who don't deserve it. And it actually starts right away in the first two verses. Because we have a God who sees the wickedness of the people of Nineveh. People who have never followed him, who, to quote chapter 2, who cling to worthless idols and turn away from God's love for them. A people who do really horribly detestable things to others made in the image of God. And yet, rather than straight up destroying these people without warning, in his grace, in his unmerited, undeserved kindness, God actually sends a warning first. And he calls the prophet Jonah to go to the people of Nineveh and to call them to repentance. And yet, Jonah, as you know, out of his hatred for his enemies, his enemies who are politically different than he is, Enemies who are of a different race, ethnicity, and culture, who live different and deplorable lifestyle in Jonah's mind. People who have been cruel to Jonah and Jonah's people, out of his hatred in his heart for those people, for them, he does the exact opposite. He turns and runs to the edge of his known world in the opposite direction in order to disobey. And Jonah's hatred for his neighbors runs so deep that later on, when he has the opportunity to turn and go back, his preference would be that he would just get killed. Just kill me. Just throw me into the storm in order that my enemies cannot be saved. Because if I go down, they go down too. Jonah fails to love God and he fails to love his neighbor. And as we've been seeing throughout this series, it is so easy for us to be just like Jonah. For us to decide and, and, and kind of put ourselves in the role of judge, pretending that we have the responsibility and the privilege of deciding who is worthy of grace, who is worthy of God's grace, or who is even worthy of my kindness, my favor. And of course, we always think about ourselves way too high, right? We think way too highly of ourselves, thinking that in some way we have deserved or earned God's kindness by our behavior, our comparative morality our church attendance, or some other nonsense. And then conversely, we stand very easily in condemnation over others who are different than us politically, who may have a different ethnicity and culture, whose lifestyle is appalling to us, who have done something that you can't imagine ever doing and they've hurt you and your people in a way that just is, that's it. And we choose to withhold grace and kindness from them as well. See, self-righteousness can so often blind us of our own need for grace as well. 
See, in this book, there is absolutely nothing that is beautiful or lovely or worthy of favor or kindness or grace. There's none of that. You don't find anything beautiful in Jonah. And yet throughout the entire story, God pours out his grace on Jonah. Because here's the good news about God and his grace. He does not show his kindness in connection to your character. But he gives grace and kindness and connection to him and his character. God does not wait for people to turn and begin pursuing him. He initiates. He pursues. In fact, if you're a Christian this morning, that is your story. You love him because he first loved you. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace, for it is by kindness and the favor of God that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourself. This is a gift from God. Not by works, not by something that you have earned or deserved. There is not a single one of us that can boast about that. God doesn't wait till we repent to say and say sorry before he gives grace, but it's actually, according to Romans 2, verse 4, the exact opposite, that it's the kindness of God that is intended to lead you to repentance, not the other way around. And that's exactly, again, what we find throughout the entire book of Jonah is God's grace and kindness to Jonah. But I'm going to warn you, as we walk through chapter 1 and 2, it's not going to feel like grace. It's not going to feel like God's kindness. Let me show you what I mean. The first act of God's kindness to Jonah is found in chapter 1, verse 4. The Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. And you stop and go, wait a minute. <laughs> that doesn't feel like kindness. No, I'll bet you're right. I'll bet you Jonah's not standing on the boat as he's getting tossed back and forth. Everybody's going crazy around him. I doubt he's standing there going, God, thank you for your kindness in my life. This is so good. It didn't feel like that in the moment. In fact, there's another uncomfortable gift of God's grace, and it's in verse 17. It's the fish. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Do you hear what God provided? <laughs> You're like, that's not what I would call God's provision. A giant fish to swallow him for three days and three nights. Again, not comfortable. Actually, little hint, little spoiler for the next couple of weeks. Keep your eyes open in chapter 4 for some other things that God provides. They're not comfortable for him. But what is going on? This doesn't feel like kindness. How in the world is this God's grace? It doesn't feel good for Jonah. And we have to get this straight. God's kindness is not primarily about your comfort. But God's kindness and his grace is about your ultimate good. I'm going to say that again. God's kindness, his grace in your life is not about your comfort. But it's ultimately about your good. You see, if the very thing that we have been created for is intimacy with God, to be in his presence, where real life and joy and love are found, if being in his presence is what you were created for, the greatest good, then what Jonah is doing, which as you see earlier, is he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He's running from the very best thing that he could ever have. And God's kindness in the form of a storm pursues Jonah to wake him up, actually literally in this case, right? 
I mean, think about how much you have to hate someone in order to see them heading down a path of destruction that is going to lead to something that is so bad for them that will ultimately destroy them and for you to just step back and let them go. Think about how much hatred it would take for that. Actually, if you go back and you read Romans 1 later today, you'll find that God's wrath is not this, uh-oh, here comes a lightning bolt garbage. But in fact, it's actually God stepping back and giving people over to the destructive desires of their heart. It's actually God taking his hands off and saying, fine, your will be done. That is God's wrath, which means that God's wrath against Jonah would actually have been to allow him to go to Tarshish. To allow Jonah to flee the presence of the Lord would have been God's wrath on Jonah. But instead, he sends the storm as an incredible act of love, refusing to give Jonah something that is not ultimately what is best for him. Even if it doesn't feel comfortable in that moment. You see, we, we get these things really confused because we often talk about being, you know, hashtag blessed or hashtag grace in, in our lives when everything is going really well. And everything's really smooth. And don't get me wrong, there is grace and kindness of God in that moment. Because it is, it is nothing other than a miracle that you and I are not destroying this world and our lives more than we might be already. That is the kindness of God. But what happens is when we flip that over, and when things become challenging, what naturally happens is we think, God's mad at me. He must hate me. Things aren't going smoothly. And yet I think you can argue from Scripture that the exact opposite is true. That sometimes in His wisdom and love for us, God will graciously send a storm or in his kindness send and provide a fish as a means to wake us up, to reveal our idols, to reveal what is really inside of us, which is a deep need for his grace, of which there is no end to that need. Many of you have been in those moments. Many of you have lived through things that are incredibly challenging, very difficult, that can be described in no other terms than a storm. And yet as you look back on them in hindsight, maybe you have the wisdom now to look and say, God, that was your kindness because of what you have done. That we have a God who redeems those moments and uses all of those things in the lives of his children to make you more like Jesus. One of my favorite quotes of all time comes from a man named Charles Spurgeon. And he says, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Lord, give us that perspective on our challenges. See, Jonah's essentially put into a timeout <laughs> in the belly of this fish. Not because God hates him, but because he loves him too much to allow him to continue to run to something that will actually lead to his destruction and the destruction of others. See, as we saw in Romans 2, the act, this act in Jonah's life of God's kindness and grace is intended to lead him to repentance. So the question is, does it? Well, let's keep looking. So Jonah chapter 2 is all about, it's essentially this giant mashup of Psalms, which Jen walked us through last week. But I want to draw your attention to verse 7. Jonah realizes he's in this mess. And in chapter 2, he cries out to the Lord. In verse 7, he says this, When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to your holy temple. And this is another one of these examples that we talked about maybe a month or so ago, where Jonah is actually referring back to something that his readers would have had 
a very important moment in their lives, but because you and I just don't know the Old Testament the way that Jonah's audience did, the way the Israelite people knew it, we're missing something here. We're missing a reference to another event. And it comes from a really important part in Israel's history when the, when the temple has just been built, this grand place that Solomon is now standing next to and he's dedicating, he's, he's, there's a really long prayer in 1 Kings. In chapter 8, Solomon is dedicating this temple and listen to what he says. He says in verse 37 to 40, when famine or plague comes to the land or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers or when an enemy besieges them in any of their cities, whatever disaster or disease may come, when a prayer or plea is made by anyone among your people, Israel, being aware of the afflictions in their own hearts and spreading out their hands towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive and act. And when he says act, he means act to rescue. Forgive, rescue, save. Deal with everyone according to all they do, since you know their hearts for you alone know every human heart. Solomon's praying an incredible prayer. Whenever someone of Israel is in trouble and they cry out to you, and they're in any type of distress, Lord, when they cry out to you towards your presence, towards your temple, forgive them and act. An incredible prayer, except there's two things in it that are a little uncomfortable to me. First one's verse 38. When they cry out to you, being aware of the afflictions of their own heart. Pause for a second and think about Jonah. Do you think Jonah's aware of the afflictions of his own heart? Go read Jonah chapter 2 this afternoon. If you find something in it that makes you think, oh, Jonah's very aware of the afflictions in his heart, please tell me. Because I can't find anything. I see Jonah being very aware of the circumstances around his life. I see Jonah very upset and, and uncomfortable because of the condition that he's in, the results of his sin. But do you see anything in Jonah too that makes you realize that Jonah is aware of the affliction of his heart? Jonah doesn't confess a single thing that he's done wrong in, in Jonah 2. I'm not entirely convinced. To ask it another way, if God's kindness is intended to lead to repentance, does Jonah repent? Because you see, repentance is not simply being sorry for getting caught or upset about the consequences of our sin, but it's actually a deep remorse and a rejection of sin itself and a turning towards God with a resolution to move forward in pursuit of him and obedience to him. Because unfortunately, I think too many of us have a really pathetic understanding and view of what repentance is. It's not just being sorry for being caught or the consequences. It's also not just a one-time thing. And I think too many of us are depending. We have this mentality in our, in our circles that a conversion experience is it. That repentance is a one-time thing. The problem is the Bible does not have a category for a Christian who simply has a conversion experience, a one-time moment with no long-lasting growth of love for God, no growing intimacy with Christ, no fruit of the Spirit being evidenced in your life, no love for His Word, for His people, no ongoing repentance and confession. By the Bible's definition, that's not a Christian. 
It's ongoing. Listen to the way that Martin Luther describes this. He says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of a believer should be repentance. Sure, it has a beginning, but that's not where it stays. It's not a one-time thing. J.I. Packer said this brilliantly. He says, repentance, see if you can track with this. I have to read it several times myself to get it. Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge at all three points grows, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. In other words, repentance grows directly as you see how deep your sin really goes. As you see more of who you are and at the same time see the greatness and beauty of God, repentance grows even more. It's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing in our lives. So was Jonah aware of the afflictions of his heart? Did he repent? I don't know. But maybe there's a better question. Will Jonah need to repent again the next day? Yes, he will. And so will you and I. There's a second strange part of his prayer, of Solomon's prayer from 1 Kings 8. In verse 39, he says, When someone prays to you, forgive and act. Deal with everyone according to all they do. And this is terrible news for Jonah if God answers Solomon's prayer. We've already seen Jonah's life. We've already seen that Jonah has, even though the sailors call him an innocent man, which is always hilarious to me, he's already confessed that I have, I'm running away from the Lord. It's my fault this is happening. And if God treated Jonah in accordance with what he has done, his story would look a whole lot differently, and so would yours, so would mine. Praise God that God acts to forgive and rescue, not in accordance with your sin, as Psalm 103 says, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. How can this be? How is it that God can just kind of, does it seem like he just kind of ignores our sin? How does he not treat us in accordance with what he does? How does he not answer Solomon's prayer? And the answer comes in the person of Jesus Christ, who is God in flesh Come to this earth. Because Jesus comes to this earth and says, yes, you may be very similar to Jonah in some ways. But he says, I'm like him in different ways. Let me tell you how I'm the true and better Jonah. How I'm the one who didn't run from the Father's will, but willingly submitted it and came out of my own volition to a people whose wickedness had come up before me. I've come to a people who cling to worthless idols and turn away from my love for them. And yet I willingly come not to enjoy the comforts of this world, but I came to a storm, intentionally facing that storm head on. A storm that is far greater than any ocean storm, but a storm that is embodied by a cup of wrath, of God's wrath against sin. And the night before he is crucified, Jesus stares into this cup and says, Father, is there any way, any other way? And it's so intense that just thinking about it makes him sweat like he's bleeding. Jesus looks into that storm and says, I will throw myself into it so that my enemies can be saved. And on the cross, the men around Jesus also begin to cast lots. 
But it's not to determine who's innocent and who's guilty. Jesus is the truly innocent one who's done absolutely nothing to deserve this. In fact, he's so innocent that the rulers who wanted to kill him actually had to pervert justice and throw on a fake trial and elicit false witnesses in order to convict him and kill him. He's that innocent. But Jesus on the cross does not pray as Solomon did, Father, deal with them according to what they do. But from the cross, he cries out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And in his love and his grace, the Father hears that prayer and he answers that prayer. That by faith in Jesus, all who are united in faith with Christ are not treated as their sins deserve. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. By grace, you and I are not treated as our sins deserve. In fact, Jesus was treated as our sins deserve. And in grace on top of grace, you and I, by faith, are viewed as Jesus in accordance with what Jesus has done. Which means that you and I are seen as spotless, perfect, blameless sons and daughters of the king. Fully loved and accepted. So much so that the king says, come, come to the table with me. My grace is so real. It's as real as the bread and the juice that you hold in your hand. It's so real. And you and I can be absolutely certain that nothing can separate us from this because not even death separated the true Jonah. Because Jonah, the true Jonah wasn't vomited out onto dry land. He walked out of a tomb in victory over sin and death. And you can be confident that that grace is for you. You can search the entire world over and over again, and you will never find a love like this, a kindness like this. And it is his kindness that leads us to repentance for the first time or for the millionth time. Let's do that today. Father, your love is unreal. Lord, make that so real to us. Reveal your kindness to us in a new way today. There is no end to our need of you. Your grace, your kindness, your love towards us, it leads us to repentance, and so we do that now. Father, we repent of our running from you. We repent of our idols that we cling to. Lord, we repent of what we know because we aren't even aware. So in your kindness, would you still keep revealing our idols? Would you show us the depth of our need for your grace? And would you be everything that we need? We repent from the way that we have, have caused division of, of the hatred and, the, and the, the, the animosity that we feel towards other people. We have so much to repent of, and yet we can do that with kindness and with, with confidence and with joy. Because we know that you love us, and there is nothing that can separate us from your love, not even our own sin. So, Father, we praise you, and as we come to the table... May your grace become real to us in the way that we, in just the same real way as we touch and we taste. May we taste and see that you are good. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.